0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. Uh, we haven't done one of these in a while, but uh, once again, we are having someone else's podcast on our feed, uh, but this is another one of those podcasts where it's because I was the guest on someone else's podcast. Uh, in this case, uh, this is the So to Speak podcast from the organization FIRE. Uh, FIRE, if you don't know, is a really wonderful organization that uh, works to protect free speech on campuses, on uh, various school campuses, and they do a really good job, uh, and they've been a, a really... I would say principal defender of free speech for a very long time, and they do some really amazing work. So I was really happy uh, to be asked to be on their podcast, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, we recorded this a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, it's me being interviewed by someone from FIRE, uh, Nico Perino, Uh, And we just have a fairly wide-ranging discussion about a variety of topics, uh, touching on free speech and the types of things that I write about on TechDirt concerning free speech. Uh, And we put it all together, and it is this podcast, and they put it out on their own feed. So if you happen to already listen to the, so to speak, podcast that they put out uh you probably don't need to listen to this again unless you want to hear it all over again uh but uh if you don't uh, then uh now you get to hear me on the so to speak podcast thanks
1: the world is increasingly technological so we have better get methodical bringing precision to critical digital journalism with
0: modern monica, stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us painting and taking on all the plates to pay control document the way that they aim to take controlrutiniz through their lives and make andfold if we don't stand up to them someone will get to grab a shovel and dig up the tech
1: if we don't stand up to them someone will get per to grab a shovel and dig up the tech Mike Masnick thank for coming on the show today yeah thanks for having me I'm excited so
0: you founded TechD in 1997 is that right Um, Yes. It it depends on your definition of founded, but but sure. Uh, I I started something that became Techdirt in 1997.
1: And since then, I've seen you've written like 50,000 blog posts. Many of those are about free speech. Was free speech always a topic
0: of conversation or a topic you wanted to cover on TechDirt? I don't know if it was always a topic. I mean, I think it was always important to me. Uh, Free speech has been something that I've been interested in for a very, very long time. Um, Going back to, uh, and I was reminded of this recently, in uh, high school, and I I can't remember exactly which grade in high school I I was. Uh, I was part of a group of of folks who uh, produced an underground newspaper, uh, which you know, I, I chuckle now in retrospect, it sounds so cheesy that we, we thought that was cool at the time. But, uh, <laughs> um, but my job in the very first issue of the underground newspaper was to actually uh, explain to anyone reading it why us producing and distributing an underground newspaper at the high school was legal. Uh, and so I, I went on a, a deep exploration of, of early free speech cases and things like uh, Tinker versus Des Moines and and uh, and, and stories like that and, and wrote up this whole you know legal analysis when I was you know however old sixteen years old <laughs> on on free speech and uh, in in high schools uh, and so I, I've always been sort of interested in the subject. Uh, Techtron itself wasn't initially supposed to be focused on those things. It was just focused on kind of um, innovation and uh, technology, obviously, and and business and business models and things like that. Um, but, you know, the more I was writing about it and the more I was interested in this stuff, these things all started to converge. I was writing a lot about uh, intellectual property uh, early on and and that kept sort of bumping up against free speech questions. And then a bunch of other topics would come in and, and you know, writing about the internet certainly quite a bit. And there are all sorts of free speech questions that come up when you talk about the internet. And so uh, free speech has always sort of been there, but it, it didn't necessarily think of it as a focus early on, but certainly within a few years, it became a a pretty key topic on the site.
1: Yeah. Now, if you go to techdirk.com, free speech is one of the five tabs at the top of the website.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one that certainly has become a a central theme and I think really important. I think it touches on all of the other stuff that we talk about. Um, And, you know, I, I've, I've explained this before to people that I think that, you know, what, what, what really drives me at a core is sort of interest in innovation, but I actually think free speech and innovation tie together and they're really, really important and that you don't get the same kinds of innovation without free speech um, as, as you do with and, and And they sort of go together in the other way too, where I think innovation helps create opportunities for there to be more expression and more speech as well.
1: Well, you'd think in Silicon Valley where innovation is so important that you'd also have – Strong support for free speech principles is that something you find? Because those of us who live on the East Coast, we think of Silicon Valley as being um, maybe more progressive than Middle America or the East Coast, and consonant with that is you know the progressive or skepticism of free speech that we've seen on display recently, especially on college campuses.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would say that's true. I mean, I, I you know you're talking about many millions of people. And so obviously lots of people have very different viewpoints and and different stances on things. You know, it's funny Silicon Valley. It's, it it is, I think uh, a little hard to classify, you know, it, it it certainly, uh, you know, votes, uh, you know, progressive democratic candidates usually, but also we have a very sort of strong, uh, you know, what, what people refer to as libertarian streak uh, in terms of how people view things. And so I think Silicon Valley is actually a pretty... Strongly, you know, free speech focused, um, you know, but again, we're talking about a a huge generalization, but you look at the companies and sort of where they came from and, um, you know, the people who work at these companies who are making some of these decisions really are steeped in sort of, you know, historical free speech principles. Um, or, you know, you have people who, you know, there's a lot of people I know who work at tech companies who, you know, came out of the ACLU, for example, and, you know, have very strong free speech principles and and bring that into, into the companies that they work for. Um, and so, you know, I mean the, the, now it's sort of, uh, joked about, but the line that you know, Twitter is the the free speech wing of the free speech party. You know, I I was just going to bring <laughs> that up. <laughs> you know, that that's a, a very real feeling out here, and I think a lot of people do believe very strongly in in free speech from you know just as as a as a concept. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that they see is uh, the
1: issues that. Twitter and Facebook and YouTube have had with content moderation and choosing what is allowed and what is not allowed on the platform. And the focus is on what is not allowed on the platform, which is characterized as a form of censorship. And I guess you could probably describe it that way. Uh, but you see it in that case as being kind of in the opposite, in opposition to general free speech principles. And, uh, you know, on on the one hand they are, they are platforms and they have the editorial right to allow whatever they want to allow on their platform. But then you have lawmakers on Capitol Hill who are lambasting (laughs) the Twitter CEO for uh, what they perceive as conservative bias. Right. So I think that's the kind of the conception that, people in popular america have
0: yeah I, well i think i think it's a lot trickier and a lot more nuanced than that and, and i think that's part of the problem right so you you do have different competing interests here and certainly like you know if we're talking about free speech uh, the the platforms themselves have free speech rights in terms of determining you know who they allow on their platforms and not their private platforms just like it's,
1: you at tech Dirt can yep. allow whoever
0: you want to write for tech Dirt, <laughs> exactly, to exactly write for tech Dirt and can not publish whatever you don't want to publish right and so so you have you have choices about that and and Normally, we support that kind of free speech as well. Um, you know where it becomes tricky, and, and you know I certainly early on, you know, came at a lot of this from the perspective of, um, you know, this platform should take a totally hands-off approach. Um, but. Even the more that I've thought about and how these conversations, you begin to realize that that is a is it, it's a it's a lot trickier of an equation than people seem to think it is. Um, if you haven't managed uh, uh, any sort of community, frankly, um, you, you know, you begin to realize, like, if you have a, a totally open site and a totally open community, what happens? It Very very quickly, gets filled up with spam uh, and and all sorts of other junk, right? And so, like, you know, one of the first things, you know, on TechDirt itself, like, we have. You know, we have a commenting system and, you know, early on my, my stance was, well, we should never delete any comment no matter what. And then, of course, you start getting all this comment spam. You're like, oh, wait, OK, uh, that, that's not really good. That's not good for the community. It's not what anyone wants to see. So we can probably delete that. And then you're like, okay, well, now I actually do feel that content moderation is okay. So well, now I suddenly have to draw lines in terms of, well, what is okay and what is not okay, uh, and and then you suddenly open up a huge host of, of very difficult questions. And so it's it you know it's it is a really really tricky issue, um, and it's you know what's interesting and what I think is is missed by a lot of people who don't you know, don't interact with the people at these companies who are trying to make all of these calls is it, it is kind of amazing how many of them come from this sort of very strong pro free speech uh, background. And in fact, I, I, uh, I'm i not going to name who, but someone at one of these companies recently commented to me uh, something to the effect of, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is they're criticizing all these companies and their, their content moderation decisions is how many of the You know, the lawyers and policy people at these companies who are making these decisions were people who, you know, otherwise speaking probably would have gone to work for the ACLU or EFF or some other organization that is strongly pro-free speech. Uh, And they are at these companies really trying to come up with policies and plans that are protective of free expression as much as possible with the recognition that you know no matter what you do there are trade offs you know do you allow all sorts of spam uh, or not you know and then once you've said that do you allow people to be harassed and threatened uh, well then you have to start dealing with that and so there are all of these things and 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 so many of the cases are a lot more gray than than black and white, and it's easy to sort of pick out one or two cases and say, "Well, I would have decided differently." Um, but it's it's hard; it's much harder in practice. And and just as an example of that, we 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 did this um, uh, event um, that we ran in in Washington D.C. last year uh, at a conference on content moderation, and and the event was we presented we basically turned the entire audience into content moderators. Uh, and we presented, we sort of had a, a fictional social uh, network and a whole bunch of examples of flagged content uh, and uh, made up terms of service in terms of like, this content was flagged and someone said it, it violates this particular rule. Um, and it was, you know, lightly fictionalized. And some of the the examples were based uh loosely on on real life examples and we asked the audience what would you do about this content if you were a content moderator And, and we gave people four choices so one was just do nothing leave it up uh one was take it down uh one was put some sort of flag on it so basically like you know a warning sign you know this might be adult material or whatever you know some sort of uh flag that would would indicate to readers they could still see it but there's some sort of warning sign associated with it and then the last one was uh uh, escalate, which is basically you know this is above my pay level. <laughs> this is too difficult to to determine um, and we went through eight different examples and and what was amazing was out of an audience of about a hundred people took part in the in the the system we just had them vote on their on their mobile phones um, was that with every single example, at least someone in the audience chose each of the different the four different options um, and so you know it it really highlighted. To me, at least, and hopefully to people in the audience, like these are not easy decisions. There's no clear answer, even in cases where some people think this is obviously, of course, you should leave this content up, and of course you should always allow this, or of course you should take this down. There are always some. There's always someone who disagrees, um, and it it sort of highlights how difficult that question is. And and again, you know, I am coming at this from from a uh, you know, I am a a you know true believer in in free speech, First Amendment principles, and supporting as much expression as possible. And I I believe strongly in these ideas of of you know uh, free speech and 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 the market of ideas. And if someone is is spouting something stupid, the best way to deal with it is is more speech and and things like that. Um, but I also recognize that there are real challenges to to managing content on a platform and and keeping that platform. Um, you know, viable as a as a platform for people to use, and so it creates really really difficult choices. Uh, and so I'm, I'm I, I know the sort of public perception that's out there, um, but I'm um you know I, I think it's important to sort of push back a little bit on the idea that these companies are out there censoring people. I think they're making very difficult decisions, uh, often trying to think through all the options. I think they could do a lot better job of of with transparency about how they're making these decisions. I think they could do a lot better job of having a clear due process and appeals process for how this stuff works. I think they could do a much better job of um, clarifying what the rules are and and situations in which there may be problems. Um, But, you know, I, I, you know, contrary to the, the, the belief that's out there, these are not people who are going to work and saying, who can we censor today? Uh, You know, I think it's very much the reverse of that.
1: Well, I think they're going to work and, trying to run a business. Uh, uh you know, this isn't the town square. This isn't run by the government. I remember when MySpace first came out and I was you know, kind of taken aback, maybe not taken aback because there was nothing to compare it to, but I was amazed by how much you could manipulate your profile on MySpace. <laughs> like if you knew a little bit of HTML, right. you could make the background black, you could put a strobe light in there if you want, you could have memes up and down and it would take a minute to load the entire page. And for me, after a while, it it just seemed to get annoying. And I didn't really (laughs) want to use the platform anymore. Right. And now, you know, on the one hand, MySpace gave us a lot of freedom. But on the other hand, that amount of freedom kind of turned me off from this community, from this platform. And I just think about now, you know, what if free speech or what if Facebook allowed um, for First Amendment free speech protections on its platform? Uh, And you could post pornography on the platform, or mm-hmm. you know we we know what the Supreme Court says about crush videos right for example uh I don't know that I would wanna go to Facebook every day uh yeah. so when you manage something you you have to take the trade offs more seriously than you do if you're just Monday morning quarterbacking and i anyone who's ever run a business or run a department or had employees uh, or needed to create a viable business or organization kind of knows yeah how difficult those trade-offs can be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's a real challenge. And I think, you know, what what we should encourage though is, is the opportunity for anyone else to to create different communities and they could be specialized communities. You know, if they are, you know, if we're talking about content that, that is, you know, maybe some people really don't like or unlikely to like, or uh, things like that, you know, I'm not against there being a specialized community, um, you know, where people can, can discuss those things. I mean, obviously within, legal limits. Um, but, you know, that doesn't have to be on the platform that then shares that content with everybody else in the world, right? So there, there are, you know, different aspects to this, you know, and, and part of it is this question of, you know, should everything be exposed equally to everyone, right? It's one thing to have the right to to speak and, and, being able to speak is important. The right to, you know, anyone to be able to set up a soapbox, you know, in, in the corner of the public square and, and speak out, I think, is great. But that doesn't mean everyone should be forced to to stand next to the soapbox and, and listen to someone with a bunch of crazy ideas, right? I mean, if you want to be able to walk away from them, you should be able to walk away from them. Um, and you know, the way social media is set up these days, it's it's sometimes tricky to actually do that. And so that's part of what plays into this as well. Yeah,
1: I, well, I think one of the issues that places like Facebook and Twitter have is that on the one hand they're saying they aren't the town square, but then yeah. in reaction to some of the meddling from foreign actors that we've seen, they're, they're kind of recognizing that they are and they have a lot of power in the political discourse <laughs> and are implementing policies that are reflective of this new view of themselves as the town square. So it becomes harder to make that uh, we're not a town square, we're not the megaphone for democracy argument uh, that you would like to make if you are moderating content <laughs> when you kind of need that justification yeah. to do what they're doing, uh, in police. Sure, I mean, yeah, it,
0: yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's it's something totally different, right? It's it's something totally new, right? I mean, so I think it's it's tough to make the comparison. And say they are a, a town square and they're not because they're they both are and are not, right? It's it's something. T- totally different and it's it's a different thing and and you know one of the things that 's happening right now is we 're in the midst of this new thing existing and people not being used to it or or you know not being adjusted to it or adapted to it and i and I actually Think that like many situations where people sort of freak out about the new thing and and the negative consequences of the new thing, and lots of new things come up with negative consequences. Over time, as a society, we we actually do a pretty good job adapting to the new things and understanding the negative consequences and figuring out ways as a society to minimize the the negative consequences and and to you know uh, uh, promote the beneficial side of these things. And I think that we're at that you know in that middle point that everyone seems to forget about, uh, in which we're learning all of that and we're figuring out as a society how to adapt. And, you know, at some point in the hopefully relatively near future, we will figure out how to adapt as a society. And it's not necessarily dependent on the the platforms, uh, you know, getting regulated to hell or, or whatever. Uh, but we as a society will figure out you know, how do we deal with That there is negative, there is content that we don't necessarily want on these platforms and and how can we adjust to that? And then we'll look back on this and it'll sort of seem like a moral panic that everyone got all all up in arms over uh, that, you know, probably wasn't worth it in the long run. But, you know, those things take time and, and as that process is happening it's difficult because it's not clear what the answer is. In retrospect, it'll probably be obvious, but right now it's it's not. Well, I kind of cut you off earlier when you were talking about the history of TechDirt.
1: So we look back on 1997 yeah. and you're talking about, and I'm talking about, kind of the fears that we have surrounding these new things today in 2019. Back when you started TechDirt in 97, what were the new things then? And did you have, <laughs> were there were there like similar fears or different fears that existed back then that, Kind of went by the wayside as these technologies progressed.
0: Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, and there are all different things. I'm trying to think of which one is the best example for that. But like, um, you know, early on, certainly one of the one of the big issues was around copyright and and music online. And so, you know, 97, 98 Napster Napster. Exactly. You know, Napster was a big thing. And suddenly there was this talk that, you know, it was going to destroy the the music industry. Right. And we've basically spent the past 20 years going through this battle of, you know, music on the Internet going to destroy it. And, and it's, it is sort of an interesting lesson in that if you look at kind of um you know the history of what happened which is you know the record labels for the most part um you know fought napster uh viciously and it was you know an attack on everything near and dear to their hearts and was going to to destroy everything with the the one exception of uh uh, BMG at the time, which was one of the major record labels before it got swallowed up by another one. Um, they actually invested in Napster. Everyone forgets this now. Uh, and we're, we're the one label that was supportive of Napster. And then like the uh, uh, people really flipped out at BMG and they kicked out the CEO and, and there was a big lawsuit over it. It as a, a, a huge mess. But everyone was saying, you know, Napster's going to kill everything. Uh, and so then they fought that. And then You know, everyone was trying to create like a legalized, uh, you know, a legal music service and the labels fought that. And for a while they were just against music on the Internet in in any way, shape or form. Uh, And then, you know, to 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 sort of appease people, they created their own uh, services. There were press play and music now were the two services that the labels created and they were awful and they were just, you know, it was this mess and they're like, look, we're adapting and everyone's like, no, we don't want you to adapt that way because it sucks and it's much easier to just use, you know, whatever was post-Napster at that point point. Uh, and then finally you start to get things to change where Apple sort of you know mainly Steve Jobs sort of twisted a bunch of arms and and convinced the the labels to to understand stuff and release music and now of course we have Spotify and and other streaming services and and the whole market has changed and you know you now look and uh you know just recently the the RIAA the the uh, trade association for, trade association for the record labels put out their latest numbers showing you know, that music is making more money than ever. And most of it is coming from streaming, which was the thing that they fought kicking and screaming for, you know, 15 of the past 20 years. And now it's making them them more money than ever. Um, and, you know, you see that, that whole thing where it's like, in 1997 and 98, if they had just been willing to sort of embrace this technology, understand it, learn how it works, and create something that would have been much easier <laughs> and and got people excited. You know, I skipped the whole part in the middle there where, where the record label started suing a bunch of music fans. You know, I think they ended up suing about 30,000 people uh, for downloading music and they lost a whole bunch of money on those lawsuits. They won some of the lawsuits, but they didn't make any money from it. And it certainly didn't endear people to the record labels or make people want to spend money on music. What made people want to spend money on music was really cool, simple to use, convenient services that had everything like. A Spotify or now an Apple Music, um, you know, it it, w- it was the innovation that that allowed people to, you know, to to enjoy it rather than you know going crazy and, and suing everyone and fighting the the innovation and technology. And it's another example of you know, given time to sort of figure these things out and not you know sued into oblivion. Uh, you know, the innovation kind of won out and created the, a world that's much better. Frankly, now the fact that I can open up Spotify. And, you know, basically listen to whatever I want. Um, you know, I might have some nostalgic regret for not not being able to go to a record store and search through, you know, the different stacks to find that one CD I've been dying for, you know, and and couldn't find anywhere else, which, you know, has has sort of a fun element to it, but it's, you know from a general perspective, the, the ability to open up an app and and pull up whatever song I want uh, that's ever been created in the world for the most part, like that is pretty amazing uh, and is a great experience overall. And so, you know, the more that we allow the innovation to occur, the more we create these, these amazing situations. Um, but, you know, one thing that we see is that Innovation upsets a lot of apple carts and a lot of people get upset and people freak out and they come up with all sorts of stories about how the industry is going to die or this is going to create all sorts of uh, other problems. And, and everyone focuses on the, the negative and, and the uh, the negative consequences of, of this innovation. And they fail to recognize the potential opportunities and new things that might result from it.
1: Well, I, I recall in the 90s, there was just kind of a general debate about the Internet, too, with the passage of the Communications sure. Decency Act. Yeah, And I was listening to a speech that Nadine Strawson, who was the former president of the ACLU in the 90s, was giving. She was giving it at the Museum, And she was telling us uh, about how hard it was to fight for Internet freedom in the 90s when you had Time magazine yeah. on July 3rd of 1995, <laughs> for example, on its cover. And people today yeah. kind of forget that... Time oh, magazine. Well, no, but Time magazine <laughs> had this huge cultural draw and pull, yeah. and it was very influential. And on on this particular cover, and if you just kind of Google Time magazine 1995, yeah cyber porn they had on the cover a yep. child kind of a shadowy child yep. a light overhead his hands are on a keyboard and he's looking out at you like he's looking at the computer screen and the cover reads cyber porn exclusive a nutty new study shows how <laughs> pervasive and wild it really is can we protect our kids and free speech yeah. and then in 1999 they had a another cover uh Growing up online, today's kids dwell in a world of computers and video games. Here's how parents can help them make the right choices. So there was just this fear of the internet in general. And one can imagine a world were it not for these internet freedom activists in which the internet would be very different today. It would be a very different medium. And me, as I'm 29 years old, I'm relatively young, I don't remember these debates, uh, seeing these conversations and seeing these covers, thinking, holy cow, were they wrong? <laughs> you know,
0: was <Yeah. laughs> the scaremongering yeah, wrong? That, I mean, the the, uh, the first one that you talked about, the cyber porn one, the, the new report, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the RIM report, was, uh, it, it, it was completely bogus, right? I mean, what came out later was that the, the report was a joke. I forget, I forget there were all sorts of problems with the the, the methodology. It was not a peer-reviewed report. It was just this, this it, it was basically like this, Random, you know, uh, project by by someone who was—I I f- I forget the exact details—but basically, the entire report was debunked, and yet it was a cover story in Time Magazine that drove a lot of the debate that that helped bring about the original um, uh, Communications Decency Act. Which, you know, the history there—if you don't know—it was like. The, the entire Communications Decency Act was basically just this pure censorship bill. I mean, it was basically saying that every internet service provider had to, you know, stop any porn from appearing on the internet. Um, and that got thrown out as, as being completely unconstitutional. There was, there was a whole legal dispute over it. Um, and the only part of, of the Communications Decency Act that survived was Section 230 of the CDA, which is now uh, you know, being fought over. But that was the part that, that created um, protections for platforms, basically saying if somebody uploads uh, some – uh, illegal material then it's not it's not the liability of the platform it's the liability of whoever uploaded it you know which which is a really important setup for protecting free speech right I mean so like that section of of CDA the only part that survived the the constitutional challenge you know came about because of an important lawsuit which was the this Stratton oakmont versus prodigy um, Stratton oakmont uh, was this this firm which you know many years later was immortalized in uh the wolf of wall street movie uh, mm-hmm. about it being the sort of you know boiler room scam operation. Um, and back in the 90s on a Prodigy message board, you know, someone had expressed an opinion about Stratton Oakmont that was very negative. And, and I forget even what the messages were. Um, but the firm, uh, which again did later turn out to be kind of scammy and people went to jail and then, you know, there's the whole movie about it. But they sued Prodigy, um, the message board operator, for these messages that were were critical of Stratton Oakmont. And The court in New York sided with Stratton-Oakmont with the very somewhat bizarre reasoning that because Prodigy um, did some moderation – this gets back to the content moderation question – because they did some moderation on their message boards, that meant they were accepting liability for anything that they left up. They are basically saying if you moderate – Uh, then you are accepting responsibility. And so if you miss something that is, say, defamatory, then you are now responsible for it and you can be legally liable for it. And that's crazy when you think about it from any perspective, anyone running any site that would allow any user-generated content. I mean, we couldn't have comments under such a, a setup because we would have to review every comment. If we let through any comment, that had you know defamatory content or you know or, or something else then right. suddenly we would be liable for it and so- unless
1: unless right you did no content moderation so you could either do no right. content moderation <laughs> and let that defamatory comment go up with every other defamatory con, uh, comment right but if you did some content moderation and you took down one post here or another post here but
0: you let that allegedly defamatory comment stay
1: up then you are liable
0: Right. And then you're back to the thing where then if you don't do any content moderation at all, you get filled with spam and the, the thing becomes useless. Right. And so, you know, it became this impossible situation. So, you know, people realized and, and you know, uh, uh, Congressman Chris Cox was, was sort of the leader on this sort of reading about. Uh, this the the Stratton Oakmont case, and basically said this will this will kill the internet, right? I mean, it will kill the open nature of the internet and the the free speech part of the internet. The fact that you can have these forums and you can have message boards and you can have comments and all of that kind of stuff, you need to be able to allow the companies to to manage those things without being liable. And so, you know, he was sort of the the original crafter of of what became Section 230, and it was to enable free speech online, to enable the platforms to open themselves. Up and say, you know, if we have to do some content moderation to remove spam or remove offensive content or remove abuse, you know, we shouldn't be liable for that. And therefore, it will enable them to actually, you know, offer up those services that enable all of this free speech online. And that's why I find it uh, a little bit disturbing that a lot of the people who are now angry at the platforms um, and who feel that like they're you know perhaps biased in their in their content moderation choices that they're attacking section 230 and saying like the way to fix this is to change section 230 and to make the companies liable again which will do the exact opposite of what they they think it will because again you know it puts you in that position of either you know uh, under that condition you don't want to do any moderation at all and then you just get this this totally awful crap uh, or you shut down Uh, Anything that's user generated in the first place, and you take away the places where free speech can thrive. How do how do these
1: companies deal with content moderation? So they decide they're going to moderate content, but you're talking about Facebook, which has what millions, if not billions, of users at this point. Uh, Presumably, there's a lot of spam that's going up. Uh, Presumably, there's a lot of unsavory. Or uh, unsympathetic expression that's that's put up on Facebook. How do you, how do you deal with it? I realize there's been some reporting about it. a lot of it's done with yeah. AI, but you need AI is not going to detect satire, for example. Or it's not <laughs> right. going to be good at detecting satire. So how are these tech companies dealing with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, frankly, a lot of humans are not good at de- detecting satire either. It's <laughs> just part of the problem. Well, yeah, I mean, if you outsource <laughs>
1: it, if you outsource it abroad uh, yep. where labor is often cheaper. Yep. Comedy does not cross borders well, (laughs) and (laughs) satire as a particular brand of comedy does not cross borders well. So if you have someone, for example, in Australia or India or Pakistan moderating content in the United States, especially comedic content, you you can't be confident that they're going to be moderating that content correctly
0: yeah it's and it's tricky I mean the, the answer is frankly that that you know nobody does it well for, for the most part yeah. is, is part of the problem but you know uh and 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 so there are a number of different issues here and so part of it is that you know uh, um, uh you know one the companies all do it pretty badly, but you know in the last few years they've put a lot more uh, focus on this because it's become more and more important for them to figure out and and you know for the large companies at least um it is generally this mix of uh, of really three things. Um, and most people focus on two of them, but it's really three different things. One is uh, improved, you know, algorithmic uh, uh, monitoring, which, you know, sometimes referred to as AI, which might be generous <laughs> to describing the, the, uh, the, the tools that, that are used and, um, uh, you know, the sort of trying to flag content often, you know, certain dirty words, you know, will will put some sort of flag to be reviewed. Um, the second is is exactly what you said. You know, a bunch of human beings um, often overseas. Um, you mentioned a bunch of countries, but the one that is probably most prominent in this is the Philippines. Uh, there's there's huge there's like an, an entire industry in the Philippines of content moderators uh, who just go into, you know, office buildings in Manila and, and are constantly you know, clicking on Facebook content and saying allowed, not allowed, 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 not allowed. Um, And uh, and then, but the third element of it is user reporting. You know, uh, a lot of it is, if somebody sees some content that they think violates Facebook's rules, they click to report or Twitter's rules or, or YouTube's rules or whatever. They click a report and and some threshold of, of clicking uh, leads it to to be escalated to to a human review or an A.I. review or some combination thereof. Um, and and, you know, people review this stuff and it is you know, it's still an impossible problem because of, of all the reasons that you said, like, you know, AI doesn't determine what is satire or parody or fair use. If we're talking about the copyright context, um, and human beings aren't necessarily so good at that either. Um, and you know, we've had problems with our content being removed a few times. We have, um, you know, uh, people are trying to take down our content with either, DMCA takedowns. Usually these days, people are, are sending takedown notices to like Google, and they're. Uh, we've had people who have been uh, my favorite one, and this happens more often than you would be, uh, believe. Is is. Uh, uh, People who were criminally convicted, uh, often in Europe, uh, who then use uh, some of the laws in Europe to try and remove our articles from Google search so that people search on their name, the fact that they were convicted of a crime uh, no longer shows up in, in Google. And what's the vehicle for that? The right to be forgotten? Yeah, it's it, well, it, it was originally, there was a ruling for about this concept of the right to be forgotten, uh, and then it, it was sort of... Um, uh, made more official in the gdpr which is the general data protection regulation in Europe which uh, went into effect uh, last may may of two thousand eighteen um, and you know and again like there are ideas here that that make sense and 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 you know again it was sort of a response to you know big companies not necessarily doing a very good job of respecting people's privacy and and how your data was used right and so that is potentially a problem and, and you can see why people are annoyed by that but the the rules that, that europe set in place were you know well meaning and people were thinking like how can we you know give more control to end users of their data which is something i support and i think is good but it included this right to be forgotten and and the concept again like you know from from a from a 10,000 foot view it sounds like it makes sense so it says like if there's a company that has private data on you, you are allowed to request access to that data to see what data they hold on you. And you can request that they forget it. And in the the, the setup of, say, you know, a, a data broker um, that is collecting all sorts of information about you, you can understand why that might make sense. You know, you don't want some company that has collected all different things about like all of your historical purchases and they're building a profile on you. You want to be able to, to allow individuals maybe Um, you know, to to go in and say, I don't want you to make this this profile of me. That's creepy and and scary. And so I want to be able to ask you to delete it. But it's been interpreted in a way that includes like the data that Google collects on you in order to return results about you on a search. So if I search on, you know, your name and you committed a crime, you know, I kind of feel like it should be you know one of the things that turns up would be articles about the fact that you were committed you know you 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 committed a crime and were convicted of it. Um, that feels like supportive of free speech. <laughs> but under the gdpr, it's sort of been determined that, you know, there, there is like this sort of newsworthy relevance exception, but is not very clear and not well enforced. And to avoid facing huge fines, it appears that Google is pretty quick to remove things. Um, you know, we have one case where uh, uh, we had written about someone using this process to get an article from The New York Times removed about the fact that he was convicted of a crime. And then we wrote about – so we wrote about that and then uh, that person appears to have sent a, a a right to be forgotten request to Google to remove our article about that. And then we wrote another article that didn't even mention the guy's crime because we could say, OK, if you argue uh, – and I find this silly – but if you argue that you know the guy did his time – the, the fact that he committed a crime 12, 15 years ago, that should be forgotten. Like our article about the fact that he's using this GDPR process to delete an article about his crime, that's something new. That's something that's newsworthy. That should be allowed. But- No, (laughs) like Google took that out of the index also. And so we wrote another article about it. And that one went. And so we've gotten this process where like every few months, this guy sends another right to be forgotten request. Google removes our old stories about him. And then we feel like we need to write a new one talking about him abusing this process. And it's this weird sort of cat and mouse situation. But. You know, you you have this.
1: Well, that's the big threat to democracy, right? I mean, this idea that you need to use a specific example to talk about the excesses of this <laughs> law, but you can't even use that example right. to talk about the excesses of that law. So you can never talk about the excesses of the law except in the abstract, which anyone who's ever written an article knows doesn't play well on the internet and doesn't resonate with people the same way that an example yeah. does or a real story does.
0: Exactly. And and like you know, to be clear, like I, I am sympathetic to 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 the story of you know, someone maybe messed up, right? You know, you, you, as, as like a kid, you committed a crime and, you know, you were convicted and you did your time and like, and you don't want that following around, following you around the rest of your life. Like, I, I, I understand that. And I am sympathetic to that. Um, but the idea that you can just delete that history from the world feels, a little bit like we're going too far,
1: you know? Yeah. It feels like uh, dropping things down the memory hole. Yeah. I mean, most people who commit a crime, especially violent crimes, those things are newsworthy. Yeah. Uh, and, most, and if it happens in a small community, it's going to be reported on. In that small community, it might be reported on in the New York Times if it's uh, significant enough. And I don't know that I'd ever want a law that would prevent the reporting on on these important newsworthy. Right, right. I
0: mean, uh, there's there's a, you know, freedom of press, freedom of speech concept right there, you know, and, and, you know, and, and I think there are other ways to approach it. Like if you have truly rehabilitated yourself and you serve your time and you've now become a productive member of society, like that is a story too right i mean tell that story right tell about you know yeah i i yeah. You know i messed up when when i was you know 19 20, 20 whatever and i i did my time and i learned my lesson and and now i've i've changed my ways and 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 you know and and that's a good story and you can tell that story and and then the fact that you committed a crime 15 years ago like no big deal, right? I mean, you, you sort of explain what that is, and people can understand that, but they have also can, can learn about how you changed and grew and became a better person, and to me, that's a lot more compelling story than, like, I want to delete the the knowledge of the fact that I did commit a crime and was convicted of it.
1: Yeah, the idea that because you've served your time, you could go back into the New York <laughs> Times' right. archives and delete any story written about you seems like, eh, it doesn't pass the yeah, free society yes, yeah, I'm, for I'm me.
0: completely with you. It's it's a very uh, European notion. I mean, the you know, the U.S. doesn't doesn't have that though. There have been, you know, some people have talked about, you know, adding that here and there are currently debates about, you know, privacy regulations in the U S and sometimes are referred to as, as a, you know, American GDPR. And, and here in California, we have uh, this uh, slightly crazy privacy law that has been passed and and there uh, it was, it was sort of written and passed in, in like two weeks, <laughs> you know, it was this sort of crazy situation um, mm-hmm. that has all these, these, you know, Problematic elements to it, and there's an effort to create a you know a U.S. based one that would would preempt the California one, and and those have problems with them, and so you know it is possible that we'll we'll end up getting that kind of thing here. Though I I don't think it would survive you know uh, first amendment scrutiny in a court, but you know these these things have impact, and and again like you know I I do want to be clear that that. The people who are coming up with these laws are well-meaning, right? And and they are addressing things that they see as problems. Um, and you know, there is this this element that some people have that that the people passing these laws or making these decisions are you know just outright evil and you know uh, just trying to 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 crack down on free speech in in every way possible. I that is not an accurate statement. I think you know. I think it's
1: well. I I mean, how many how many laws are ever passed with bad intentions? I imagine. Some, but most most yep. acts of censorship are done because they they're weighing things in the balance and they come out on the side <laughs> right. that is not the free speech side. So when we look at yep. when we look at speech codes on college campuses and they write overbroad and invasive and restrictive internet usage policies, they're not doing so because uh they wanna be the censor. They're doing so because they're looking for some narrow way to prevent one thing that happened before, yeah. perhaps, from happening again. And, uh, you know, so I, I never try and look at this as someone's acting from the worst intentions. But at the same time, I, I you know, it's not even just – Deleting criminal history. Didn't I hear a story a couple of years ago about a pianist who <laughs> yes. put on a performance in Europe, and yes. someone wrote a bad review of it, and he petitioned to get it yes, taken down, yeah. and he was successful. So now, are we talking about bad reviews can be deleted from the internet because it might compromise your ability to earn money as a pianist?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. And I, I wrote about that, but I'm forgetting who exactly it was. But I, I, I do remember writing about that that case where there was a he was very angry about this negative review, and and you. The right to be forgotten to 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 get it deleted and you know and and it just you just get more and more of those cases where you know and, and this is something that that I I have to sort of you know tell people over and over again is like if you do provide a tool like that 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 you know uh, is designed to be used to take down bad content, however you want to define bad. And I recognize it's a loaded term and everything like that. Like it will be used and and abused, you know, to take down content that people want. You know, we see this in, in countries all over the world that are now passing, you know, like what they refer to as cybersecurity laws or, you know, hate speech laws that are almost always used to like Stop critics of the government, or you know people who are criticizing the police for for abuse, and then you know they 're brought up on charges of hate speech, you know hate speech against the police or hate speech against the government and or you see this in France
1: with criticism of Israel
0: yeah yeah same same thing um, and and there are a variety of situations like that where you know and again, like you know you can see the legitimate thinking behind the law, but what, what you don 't get is Enough people thinking through the actual impact of the law and the actual impact of how these things will be used over time, um, and I think that that should be a big concern. Um, and you know, uh, and and it's it's just not. So
1: speaking of taking down content, I, I kind of need to ask you about Barbara Streisand because if you go to your if you go to your oh, Wikipedia yeah. page, it says you were the one that came up with the phrase the Streisand effect. And so tell me a little bit about yeah. the background of that story
0: yeah see so this is a great one right so so the 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 overall background was uh that um <laughs> there was this guy and and uh, I should remember it but I'm blanking on his name um who uh decided that he was going to um basically document coastal erosion on the west coast of the United States um and he had Rented or borrowed a helicopter or something, and basically flew up and down the entire West Coast of the United States, and was taking photographs and wanted to photograph literally the entire coast from, you know, the southern part of California up to the northern part of Washington, um, and then put them all online. and You could go along, and this is in the early two thousands. I want to say I forget the exact date, um, and still very early on in 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 the web history it was not a particularly user-friendly website um it was not like anything that you would see today it was just sort of static images and it was sort of difficult to go from one to the next and everything like that but you could see the entire you know this is the days before satellite imagery was easy to access google earth yeah and and, and all that kind of stuff um and his idea was every few years he would go back and do it again and you could see how the coast would change All that's great Uh, but it turns out that barbara streisand has a you know, coastal mansion somewhere in Southern California, uh, and somehow, you know, heard about the site. And either her or more likely her lawyers um, realized that one of the images included an aerial shot of Barbara Streisand's mansion on the coast and decided that this was somehow illegal and, and sued the photographer. Um, I think the amount that, that she sued for was $50 million. Um, for for posting this photograph, and you know, so the the amazing thing that came out because then you know the, there's a, a lawsuit is filed. That's public information, and so the Associated Press picked up on the story and wrote about Barbara Streisand suing this photographer. And uh, what came out during the lawsuit was before the lawsuit was filed, and really before the Associated Press wrote about it, um, that particular image that shows Barbara Streisand's coastal mansion. Uh, I I think it, it had definitely gotten single digit visits. I think it was either seven or nine total visits. Uh, and it turned out two of them were from Barbara Streisand's lawyers. So that means, you know, somewhere between five and seven other people, um, had seen the the image of her mansion and probably weren't it was, weren't
1: going to the website <laughs> to see her mansion in the first place but just happened
0: we're, we're going and, and, and probably didn't even realize it was her mansion uh-huh. you know they were just looking along the coast and all this kind of stuff uh, and of course like the day that the Associated Press story came out that particular image was seen 500,000 times you know and this was again this is the early 2000s if it had happened today it would have been you know many millions uh, you know of views and suddenly like this image that she supposedly didn't want and was so important that that she didn't want anyone to see it that she had to sue for 50 million dollars over it got so much more attention and so you know we wrote a post sort of just you know kind of making fun of that that result the fact that all of this kind of stuff happened and then sort of um you know we referred back to it a few times and then a few years later there was a similar situation we've seen this a bunch that these kinds of things kept happening um we had seen a similar situation Uh, where, you know, somebody had demanded something be taken down and it got all this attention. And I jokingly said at the end of that post, like, oh, you know, we should have a name for when this happens when somebody tries to take down content that they don't want anyone to see. And all that does is lead, you know, millions more people to go and search it out and find it. Uh, And then I just said, you know, let's call that the Streisand effect and linked back to that original story about about the lawsuit with Barbara Streisand. Uh, and somehow, and to this day, I still have no idea how that caught on. Uh, and, and I don't know why and I don't know how, uh, you know, I had mentioned it a few times on, on TechDirt and we, we were, and, uh, still are, you know, not a huge site, (laughs) you know, we, we have a, a decent following, but it's, I wouldn't say we're, we're particularly large. And actually at the time we wrote that, we were even much smaller than we are today. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I probably mentioned it a few more times, a couple other people mentioned it. And then a few years later, suddenly it got mentioned in, I think Forbes magazine, uh, and that picked it up. And then, um, uh, NPR's morning edition did a story about it, uh, and, and had me on the radio. And then suddenly it was everywhere. And the Streisand effect just became this, this thing that now is sort of, uh, well known in popular culture, which, uh, I'm, I still don't fully understand how, but you know, it's it's. I think it's a it's a really useful concept to understand when you're talking about free speech and trying to suppress speech, uh, and I think that that now there are at least some lawyers who uh, recognize that trying to suppress certain. Certain types of speech will only lead to it getting more attention and they maybe think twice about, you know, sending the the completely ridiculous threat letters that they that used to be much more common.
1: Well, we at FIRE use the Streisand effect in describing the downsides of censorship. Yeah. All the time. And, and it, we used it even before I was aware that it was you <laughs> and Tector who helped coin it. Uh, all you need to do is uh, – you see this in almost every free speech yeah. controversy going back to the Skokie controversy yep. that the ACLU got involved totally. in in 1977. Frank Collin, uh, leader of the National Socialist Party of America, was – kind of an unknown figure. Yep. Uh, he had about 10 people that were part of his party in the south side of Chicago. And then they decided to uh, try and branch out into the other suburbs surrounding Chicago because they had been denied the right to march in Marquette Park, uh, which was right next to their headquarters yep. by the city of Chicago. So they decided they're going to write 12 letters to the suburbs surrounding by Chicago. 11 of them ignored them. <laughs> uh, but Skokie? Reacted like a bold or red flag (laughs) and uh, then passed all these ordinances to censor them. And before you know it, uh, the president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, is talking about the Skokies, the Skokie Nazis. And everyone in the United States had probably read about it or seen about it on TV. So what could have been just a gang of 12 idiot Nazis marching through the town of Skokie or demonstrating in the town of Skokie became this cause – that everyone in the country knew about. And I I also look at what happened, what was that, 2017, when Milo Yiannopoulos tried to speak at the University of California, Berkeley, in February. And as many listeners to the show will know, there was protests, there were violent protests. The university ultimately decided to not let him speak uh, because they saw that his safety was in danger and the safety of the potential audience was in danger. And what happened an hour after they, uh, they took Milo Yiannopoulos off the stage. His book went to number one on Amazon, his book dangerous, uh, which was doing pre-sales at that point became number one on Amazon. And he was on Tucker Carlson all over Fox news that evening. Uh, so that, it just goes to show that whether you are a government censor or would be heckler looking to censor, uh, it often backfires and the message you are looking to mute, uh, and the effect gets amplified.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You know, some people have now said that like a lot of people and and Milo may very well be an example of this, have sort of used their own knowledge of the Streisand effect, you know, basically to their own advantage, right? I mean, you try and do something in the hope that someone (laughs) freaks out about it and tries to censor it. And then you just turn that into a publicity campaign. Um, You know, I don't know if that's necessarily true in this case, but certainly there are others who have have thought through that process. And and there are certain cases where you begin to think like, "Mm, you know, some of that may have been done on purpose. Is to just try and get attention and do something to try and get someone to shut you down just to get more attention to the original thing.
1: Oh yeah, no doubt. Um, I want to move on because I realize we're at 54 minutes already. <laughs> uh, and I want to talk, perhaps end on defamation lawsuits because sure. I've been thinking about defamation for a while now. And you recently wrote a post for TechDirt Dirt about uh, this uh, person in Canada who is the VP of finance for the university of Ottawa students for free speech. Uh, I think his name is Michele or Michelle or Michael. Um, I don't know exactly. I I don't know how to pronounce DeFranco. Yeah. I think it's Michele. I'm I'm Italian. His last name is Italian DeFranco. Uh, but he filed a defamation lawsuit against someone who had called him a racist, a bigot, a neo-Nazi, uh, a free speech asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and he is part of a growing contingent in Canada of what might be described as, quote, free speech activists who are using the very broad defamation laws in that country to go after their critics. Yeah. Uh, other people who have filed defamation lawsuits include Jordan Peterson, yep. uh, Gavin McGuinness, Lindsay Shepard. Uh, here in the United States, you saw Majid Nawaz file a defamation lawsuit against the SPLC. And I'm looking at these as a free speech Advocate, And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of times what the lawsuits are being filed over are not so much uh, malicious statements of fact or um, alleged fact against someone, uh, but rather just uh, someone's interpretation of who someone yep. is. Uh, they call someone like Jordan Peterson a fascist. They call someone like DeFranco a bigot. And these people rush to the courthouse gates. And I see some of the defense of these lawsuits on Twitter from these people who are filing them and they say well no free true free speech advocate would say that uh you know malicious statements that are untrue about someone is protected under the the first amendment or free speech and I look at this I'm saying well these these are just someone's opinion of yeah. who you are uh based on what you've said and actually there's a large contingent of free speech activists in the United States both now and historically who have looked at these lawsuits askance and seeing that they do, in net, more harm to the cause of free speech and free press than they do um, to the cause that the people filing them seek to defend, which is uh, that false information about people of fact uh, won't get spread. I think of Justice Hugo Black, who was on the Supreme Court, who did not believe in defamation law. Nat Hentoff, one of the staunchest free speech defenders of the last hundred years, uh, did a debate In the 90s, in which he argued against defamation law. And you see a number of publications that while these lawsuits have no chance of winning in the United States, the mere filing of them has bankrupted these organizations. Or you get a scary lawyer letter from someone with a lot of money who could just... uh, You know, continue to litigate the lawsuit that they have no chance of winning for years. uh, You you still have to pay your attorneys' fees in defending them, Uh, and this has generated, of course, laws that help protect against that, including uh, the anti-slap lawsuits, the strategic lawsuits against public participation lawsuits. And so, this is kind of a long way of me saying that Mr. DeFranco in Canada isn't really on the side (laughs) of free speech, uh, as some free speech activists might be concerned. So, I wanted to get your your general take on, on those issues and where you think they stand on the free speech. Yeah. Spectrum.
0: Yeah. No, I think your description is, is, is very accurate. Uh, and, and it, you know, it, it's either ironic and funny or sad and, and depressing and mayb- maybe both of those things, um, that people who claim to be supportive of free speech end up suing for defamation over speech that's clearly opinion. Um, and you know, I, 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 Am a very very strong believer in uh, better anti-slap laws, um, and so for people who who aren't familiar with with how anti-slap laws work, I mean they're they're basically um, you know laws that were originally put in place uh, in response to uh, similar lawsuits that were often done by like um, uh, large developers who were you know uh building up uh, buildings or malls or whatever and people were protesting and the developers would just sue for defamation over things they knew they couldn't win but just because exactly as you said they knew that the lawsuit alone was enough to to silence people uh and make them cave because it's it's just so expensive and would bankrupt anyone um so the anti-slap laws were put in place in in you know basically right now about half the the states in 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 the US uh, have anti slap laws that you know with varying degrees of uh, you know structure <laughs> uh, allow people to get those those cases dismissed very early on and in the best of cases also allow you to recover um, to to recover the uh, legal fees uh, which is an important part of anti slap laws to to discourage these kinds of bogus lawsuits you know I, I you know i I think that there there can be places for um, defamation law, though I'm, I'm increasingly uh, of the opinion that they should be very, very limited in their ability just because it is it is a process that is abused so much and really designed to stifle people's free speech and to just, you know, drag people down uh, through legal process um, that I'm, um, you know, I, I think that we live in an age where when we do have the internet and the ability for more and more people to speak out and give the other side of the story, and to counter questionable things, you know, if you don't like someone referring to you as a member of the alt right or calling you a free speech asshole, whatever that means. Well, uh, oh, the crazy thing I should note in in the in the defranco case that you mentioned, he he didn't even call him directly a free speech asshole. He had put out a tweet that said you know, uh, just referring generally to free speech assholes, plural <laughs> and linking to a story that included, oh, uh, DeFranco in it. So, I mean, it's even more ridiculous than, than, than uh, you know, directly calling him a free speech asshole, but like some, someone calling you an asshole, uh, that is, you know, that is classic free speech. That is someone's opinion, right? You know, uh, you're not going to go to court and define, you know, in concrete, factual terms, you know, who is an asshole and who is not, uh, and and how do you define that? And you know, one of the the, the classic elements of of what you know is is not allowed uh, in a defamation lawsuit is something that cannot be tr- proven true or false. How do you prove that someone is or is not an asshole? I mean, you know, you can have some people, you know. On the stand and i'm sure you know that guy's parents and grandparents would get on the stand and say no you know my 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 child or grandchild is not an asshole but then you have anyone else get on the stand and say no he's totally an asshole he off in traffic one time you know you could it's it's such a ridiculous concept of of even having to go to court to fight these things you know if you're in that situation where someone is saying stuff that you disagree with and that is rude or obnoxious about you like respond like you have the ability to say like no you know you're misinterpreting these things you know if i'm you know hanging out with these people that you don't like well you explain why why it is that that you know you're, you're associating with those people and you give your reasons and then everyone has the right to their own opinions on whether or not they agree with you or believe you or if they think you're an asshole or they don't think you're an asshole like that's that's the nature of of open discourse and and the fact that A lot of those people, I mean, in in DeFranco's case, the fact that he is, you know, VP of this Students for Free Speech organization is, to me, incredibly hypocritical. It's, you know, it's a situation where, you know, if you really believe in free speech, that has to include people saying negative stuff about you. Right. And, you know, and it happens and it's not fun. And and I don't like it when people, you know, attack me and my character and and say things about me that I don't think is accurate or is based on, you know, misleading take on things. But like you know, that's going to happen. Not everybody's going to like me. And in fact, a lot of people dislike me. I take strong opinions on a lot of different things, and I recognize that that's going to get people upset. Uh, you know, I don't want people upset, and I try and explain myself as carefully as possible. And if somebody's really upset, you know, if I think it's, it's reasonable to do so, I'll try and explain my position better. But that's, you know, that's a case where, you know, more speech tends to be the answer to, to speech that we don't like. Uh, and, and I'm not going to convince everyone, and some people are still going to be mad, but the fact that you then, you know, are using you're, the fact that you're upset about this stuff to go to court, uh, which is just an incredibly hellish process. And, and you know, I, I'm, I, I can't comment more than just making this point on this, but like, you know, I am still in the midst of, a, a, of being sued for defamation myself and, and have been dealing with a, with a lawsuit for over two years at this point. And it is just an incredible you know, resource-intensive, um, both in terms of money and time, and well, you know, and also just energy and 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 mental process of having to deal with, you know, being sued and having to go to court, and it's it's uh, it, it it does so much damage um, just to people for expressing their opinions on things, and it's it's really really intense, and, and the fact that people are using this, and and often people who who call themselves free speech supporters are supporting these viewpoints and saying you know this is a good thing this is you know we're 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 creating consequences for your speech that's not what that's not what people mean that's not what real free speech supporters mean when they say speech has consequences you know if the consequence is you know a a a questionable lawsuit that is creating all sorts of problems for people just for speaking and, and really creating massive chilling effects and silencing people for speaking their opinions. That is not free speech supportive. That is, that is the exact opposite of that.
1: Yeah. And, uh, I won't ask you to comment on it because it's a- active litigation, but for our listeners who are trying to get an idea of what you were talking about or what you've been going through in the past couple of years, uh, there's someone out there who claims that they invented email and, uh, you all at TechDirt have written about that and commented on it, and uh, this alleged inventor of the in, of email has uh, not responded responded kindly to that. But the whole story is online if any of our listeners want to check that out. Uh, yeah, I mean this this whole use of defamation law is very sh- short sighted. So I I look to Jordan Peterson who doesn't like being called yep. a, a racist or a fascist, fascist whatever he was called. Um, he often uses the yep. phrase neo-Marxist extremist or neo-Marxist yep. ideologue to describe his critics. And now some of them might self-describe as neo-Marxist, but in most cases, Jordan <laughs> <Peter> <laughs> yes, Peterson is using that as a pejorative. Uh, and, and someone who doesn't self-identify as a neo-Marxist ideologue uh, might take offense at that, say it's not true, and use the same defamation law laws that Jordan Peterson is using to file a lawsuit against him and embroil him in le- legal battles uh, for nothing more than what is in effect editorializing on someone's views. You might not like them, uh, but you know, so what? That's what you get in living it in democracy. So I'm very skeptical yeah. of the use of defamation law as a vehicle to uh, shut up your critics and quote, get the truth out. Uh, but there is, there are some uh, sure cases that, Are more complicated, and I don't have a strong opinion on this. But there's that that uh, kid who was involved in the Covington dispute, the guy in the red MAGA hat who was uh, in front of the Native American man uh, and was seen to be smirking at him, at or at least so it seemed in a 20 second clip that went viral over one weekend. And uh, that kid's (laughs) life uh, has changed as a result of some newspapers reporting uh, only that 20 second clip, and it later became apparent that there was more to the story than what was in that 22nd clip. But the Washington post reported on that 22nd clip and the, and this kid filed a defamation lawsuit for millions of dollars against the Washington post. And, you know, on the one hand I feel bad for the kid cause his life has changed and he was alleged to have done something, uh, that it, it's, it's pretty clear he didn't do. Uh, he, he underwent trial by internet, which is never a fun thing. Uh, But at the same time, it was a newsworthy story. It was something that people were talking about on the internet and the Washington Post was reporting on this newsworthy story. Now, you might say uh, good journalism should have demanded that they find the full video clip of what happened over the course of an hour there on the steps of uh, the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, But we live in a 24-hour news cycle and people are going to the Washington Post to find information 10 seconds, if not 10 minutes, after uh, something happened. So you, you as an editor, have to weigh those things as well. Do we talk about what the internet's talking about and uh, assume that the internet is right, or, or do we wait 24 hours until we can find that longer video and get more context to the story? I mean, there are serious consequences there for both the Washington Post and how we depend on it as a news reporting outlet, but also for the person that's being reported on, uh, the student who – Looks to have done a very stupid thing uh, in a short twenty second clip, but when you expand it out over the course of an hour it yeah it's I, it's less so yeah I mean so, there,
0: there are there are tough situations. You know, I, I, tough. I think that that the the lawsuit that he's filed against the Washington Post has no chance and and is is going to 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 be dismissed but like you know oh i don't either and yeah it, it becomes this this sort of tricky situation you look at the specifics of that particular lawsuit even if you think that the, the the description that originally went around uh about about that young man and and uh and everything was inaccurate which is 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 probably mostly true though you know there's one of these things where a lot of it is in the uh, Well, in that moment, he could exactly. have been mocking yeah. the man. I mean, no one knows exactly. what was in his
1: head. And that's i that's an interpretation. And do we really want to prevent news right. outlets from exercising right. their exactly. editorial judgment and in interpreting that moment? I mean, does every interpretation of the news have to happen over the full context of time? I'm not so sure it does.
0: Right, I, I mean that's that's an impossible requirement. First of all, you know, it's like the idea that everyone could could figure out everything and, and and understand it all is 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 an impossible requirement. And the other thing is that you know you look at exactly what happened in this case, and and you could say certainly like um, the initial. Uh, you know uh descriptions and, and attacks on on his character whether whether valid or not um you know completely did change his life he was a you know an effectively an unknown person and then became you know a, a very known person in a very short short amount of time and and a lot of that coverage was was critical and negative and that could influence someone but everything that happened after it sort of shows why defamation law is not necessarily the best tool for this, right? You know, you had that full video come out and you had, you know, like 16 different viewpoints because of these days, everyone is filming everything. And so all of those different viewpoints came out and there were all of these discussions and a whole bunch of people who initially said one thing said, wait a second, you know, within about 24 hours, people were saying, oh, I may have been too hasty on this. And there was a big wide discussion and it opened up, you know, more discussion and more conversation and more people thinking about these things. And, you know, maybe people were too quick to judge. And that's actually a really good lesson—the lesson that we should encourage people to recognize. Like sometimes you are too quick to judge. Everyone does that sometimes, and so like, but we got that that discussion and introspection. And anyone looking at it, you know, now recognizes. You know, they may still have an opinion. They may still think that that the kid was being a jerk, and 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 that's that's a, a valid opinion to have. Or people could say that everyone else misrepresented the situation. And the kid is vindicated, and that's a valid opinion to have. You know but like you know the internet sort of took care of the situation right the the supposed harm on him you know was minimized within within a few days in terms of the ability of other people to present the other side and for him to speak out and pr- present his opinions and for everyone else to opine on it that opened up this this interesting discussion and you can say that that his reputation was harmed but that depends on you know for a lot of people it wasn't a lot of people this kid is now considered you know like a uh you know something of a hero for for standing up for for his rights and so you know that's that's the the kind of thing that I think we should encourage the fact that you know different people can express their side of uh, uh, you know, their side of view. And it's, it's one of the things that the internet has has made especially powerful. Historically, if a major newspaper like the Washington Post presented one side of the story and you were a high school kid that nobody knew of, your side of the story would never have gotten out historically. But now, because you have all these other sources and you have, and you have the ability for the kid to go direct and express his opinion or to go to other media outlets or to you know, use social media or whatever you know, his side of the story got out very quickly and then everyone can kind of weigh the different things and come to their own opinion. And that's, you know, that's what's powerful and good about, about the internet. Yeah. One has to wonder,
1: I mean, what would have happened to this kid or to anyone else if this story came out in, in 1980? Now maybe, yeah. maybe, uh, you wouldn't have the story would have never been a story because the power of imagery on the internet is is something sure. today that it could have never been at any other time. But let's say that Channel Two News got that quick yeah. two second, three second snapshot of him and the the Native American man confronting each other and it's editorialized as this student mocking this Native American man in his MAGA hat. It would have ran on the 5 o'clock news, and then uh, it would have been a a done deal because the the fallout from that story probably would be less interesting and less newsworthy, for example, than what you saw on the 5 o'clock news in that short two-minute clip because you would have never gotten the full hour uh, of video footage uh, released because – The news model at that time, when you only have an hour to show the news of the day, uh, wouldn't have supported something like that. And this just kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation about we're still trying to figure out how to use the Internet. Yep. We're still trying to figure out how to moderate content. We're still trying to weigh uh, the values of free speech versus other values such as privacy or creating a community within a private space. And uh, this is just like how we were trying to figure out how to use radio (laughs) in the early part of the 20th century or or TV in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, And hopefully we all learn lessons uh, from some of these controversies that have sprouted up like the Covington one and become better users of this multimedia. But I realize we're over an hour now, yep. Mike, and I, I only asked for an hour of your time. So I just want to thank you again for everything you do at Tech Dirt and covering free speech and its intersections with technology and also on occasion uh, things that happen on college campuses and uh, to keep up the fight. And
0: I hope to do this again soon. Yeah, this was, this was great. I always love talking about these things. So, uh, so I enjoyed it even if we went over time. Oh, and I should add that you do have a podcast, right? Yes. Yes, we do. We have the Tech Dirt Podcast and we talk about all different topics. Sometimes we'll do free speech stuff. Sometimes it's, it's basically whatever interesting thing I want to go deep on that particular week we, we discuss. All right. Well, I encourage people to check that out. And Mike, until
1: next time, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.